If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John, the fourth book of the New Testament, the fourth of the Gospel accounts, and we'll be this morning in chapter 11. We'll have in view the chapter in its entirety, which we began to open up last week, uh, but this morning, at least starting out, we'll just read verses 17 through 27. Please follow along as I read John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. And when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's pray once more together. Lord, you are the eternal God. You are transcendent, high above the heavens, seemingly so far out of our reach. And yet you revealed yourself in your word, and you revealed yourself most perfectly, most fully in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And we know that it is the will of your Son, the Lord Jesus, uh, that whoever loves Him and who is loved by Him, uh, that He Himself would manifest Himself to them. So we pray now that as we look at this account of Your Son, that He would be manifest to us, revealed to us in wonderful ways for the good of our souls. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. John's Gospel is from beginning to end a great masterpiece. It is a compelling narrative of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Son of God. The narrative of John's gospel, as we've observed in previous sermons, is intricate. It is multi-layered. It includes cycles and recurring themes. And at the same time, it also includes, at least I think, a very clear structure. So I'll remind you of that structure that we've highlighted a couple of times. The gospel opens, of course, with the prologue, the first 18 verses, which sets out the major themes of the book as a whole. And then chapters 1 through 12 essentially record Jesus' public ministry. Uh, this is where Jesus is out among the people. He's out among the crowds. He's performing signs and wonders. Uh, some are believing in Him, some are uh, opposed to Him, but He's out in public among the people. Chapters 13 through 17 are the next major section, and this is Jesus' private ministry to His small band of disciples. Uh, this section of Scripture, chapters 13 through 17, is often referred to as the upper room discourse, a very precious uh, portion of Scripture on discipleship. And then, of course, the book concludes, chapters 18 through 21, with Jesus' arrest, His death, His resurrection, and His various appearances to His disciples. So in our regular exposition of the book, we're in chapter 11, so we're near the end of the section that records Jesus' public ministry, and we're about halfway through the book as a whole. So to the casual reader of the Gospel of John, the first half of the book can seem at times, especially in the last five or so chapters we've been in, uh, it can seem fairly redundant as many of the same themes are revisited again and again. 
themes like Jesus' identity as the Christ and as the Son of God, uh, the unique relationship that the Son shares with the Father, uh, Jesus' various signs, um, the need for personal faith, and the uh, unbelief of Jesus' opponents. These themes are revisited again and again almost in every single chapter. But all of a sudden, we have breaking into these cycles and apparent redundancies, chapter 11, uh, which can appear altogether different from everything that has come before. I don't know about you, but when we get to chapter 11, this very well-known chapter in the Bible, it seems like everything slows down. The narrative is a little more uh, drawn out. It's less immediate. And it has distinct scenes and plot movements. You can divide the text very easily up into various sections and various uh, plot movements. So it's sort of like a story within the story, a narrative within the larger narrative of John's gospel. And it's an altogether captivating chapter, isn't it? It is all the makings of a great drama from the tragedy of Lazarus's death to the tension that is built through Jesus' apparent inattention to the wishes of those He loves, to the heartbreaking confrontations that Jesus has with Martha and with Mary that just causes our hearts to sort of groan within us along with uh, these sisters. And of course, to the great climax, right, in verses 38 through 44, in which Jesus in dramatic fashion uh, raises Lazarus from the dead before the eyes of Martha and Mary, before the eyes of all the skeptical Jews who are around the tomb, and before the eyes of would-be disciples who do in fact come to believe on Him. Now, of course, we could read the chapter that way, as a captivating drama culminating in the great climax of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But if we read it that way, we would be wrong. The climax of John 11 does not come in the raising of Lazarus. In fact, by the time Jesus arrives at the tomb to carry on that great sign, that great miracle, the raising of Lazarus is a mere formality. No, the climax comes much earlier. The climax comes in verses 25 and 26. I'll read those verses again for us. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the big issue in this chapter. Everything is driving toward this, and everything that happens after this is commentary on this. This is the central issue. This revelation about who Jesus is as the resurrection and the life. And the way the passage essentially unfolds is that this is sort of anticipated in the early verses of the chapter. Well, then it's stated and expounded and then it's simply proved in the raising of Lazarus. But this is the big issue, who Jesus Christ is as the resurrection and the life. And so my outline this morning will uh, unfold along those lines I just stated. I will consider first the prelude to the resurrection, the prelude to resurrection. Uh, secondly, the provision of resurrection. And thirdly and finally, the proof of resurrection. The prelude, the provision, and the proof. So consider with me first the prelude to resurrection. I simply want us to take stock of uh, all the events leading up to verse 25 and Jesus' words here about who He is as the resurrection and the life. So we're looking here basically at the context. So this is all a prelude to the big issue in verses 25 and 26. So let's ask a few questions to understand the context here. First of all, what has happened prior to verse 25? What events have taken place before verse 25? Well, Jesus is told at the beginning of the chapter that Lazarus is sick. Uh, Lazarus is very sick. He's apparently going to die. And it seems like, it's not stated, but it seems like the expectation is that Jesus will simply respond and come and do again what He's already done so many times, and that is to provide miraculous healing and to do that for someone He so dearly loves in Lazarus. That's the request that's made, and it seems that comes with this expectation that Jesus would, in fact, respond to that call. Well, then Jesus determines that He's not going to go up to heal Lazarus. And the indication we're given is that this inactivity by Jesus 
is ultimately for purposes yet to be revealed. We don't know precisely what Jesus has in mind and why he would choose not to go to the bedside of Lazarus in response to Martha and Mary, who he loved, and to heal Lazarus. But we do get an indication that he's working out some larger purposes here. We get an indication that he's working this out in a way that's consistent with his love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Verse 5 says he loved them. Verse 6 says, so, essentially he didn't go up. But then we also understand that Jesus is resolved in this whole episode and in this chapter in his ministry to display the glory of God in a powerful way, particularly the Son of God. So he's moved by love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and he's moved by this resolution to display the glory of God. Well, then what happens? Lazarus, of course, in fact, dies. And Martha and Mary, as a result, are confused, and they're disappointed, and they're heartbroken. And it's then, once the crisis is over, that Jesus chooses to go up to Jerusalem, and He's met in Bethany by Martha. And that's when this conversation takes place, this conversation that includes verses 25 and 26. So now I just want to ask a question now about Martha, a contextual question. This is all prelude leading up to verses 25 and 26. What is Martha's perspective? What is her frame of reference like uh, prior to these verses, verses 25 and 26? Well, what can we conclude? Well, we know, of course, Martha is grieving the loss of her brother. The crisis is over. Jesus didn't come. Lazarus has died. And she's now coping and dealing with the loss of her brother. Secondly, Martha is disappointed, apparently, by the actual inactivity of her Lord and His apparent inattention to her sorrow. We hear this in her words in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's just disappointed. Why didn't the Lord come? Why didn't He deliver us from all of these sorrows? Why would He not come and heal the one whom He loved so much in Lazarus? She's already dealing, of course, with the loss of her brother, but imagine how much this fact that Jesus did not respond to the call, imagine how much this fact must have aggravated her pain and her sorrow. I think Martha, this is reading into the text a little bit, but I suspect Martha assumed that the Lord would come. Of course, He would come and respond. Remember how that request is first given, Lazarus, or excuse me, Jesus, He whom you love is sick. Of course, He'll come, and, and perhaps Martha was even by the bedside of Lazarus encouraging Him, don't worry, we've sent for the Lord. We've sent for the Lord, and surely He'll come, and when He comes, He'll make you well. And then the response comes. Jesus isn't coming. He's chosen not to come and to deliver Lazarus from this sickness. And how crippling, disappointing this must have been to Martha. Of course, Martha still acknowledges when she finally does speak to Jesus, she does acknowledge Him as her Lord. It's just, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she says, verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So she still embraces that Jesus has a unique relationship with His Father. She's not unbelieving. This has not caused her to turn her back on her Lord, upon Jesus. She confesses, of course, her belief in the resurrection at the last day. She's not abandoned her orthodox Jewish views. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's maybe rehearsing truth to herself to give her uh, comfort in this hour. The last thing we can observe about Martha is that she does not yet appreciate, she does not yet appreciate the connection between Jesus Christ and the resurrection on the last day. She does not yet appreciate the connection between Jesus Christ and the resurrection on the last day. Final sort of contextual question to kind of round out the prelude leading up to verse 25. Uh, what is Jesus' perspective leading up to this, uh, insofar as we can know that perspective from this passage? Well, as I've stated already, Jesus, of course, loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus. That's plainly stated in verse 5. He loves them. And this is not merely, we shouldn't think of this merely as a John 3.16 kind of love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now, this is, this is a very intimate, a very specific, 
You are my disciple. You are my sheep. No one is going to snatch you out of my hands and out of the Father's hands kind of love. This is a peculiar love, a particular love that he has for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. The second thing we could observe about Jesus, and we talked about this a lot last week, and that is that Jesus, by his own will, has created this situation. This situation in which Lazarus has died, Martha and Mary are disappointed by their Lord, so many Jews around the tomb are, are, are caused to uh, scoff at Jesus and who he is and his power to heal Lazarus. This situation has been actually created uh, by Jesus himself. If you look at verse 4, Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, like the purpose in this that I have ordained is the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. We saw last week that that word so can be translated therefore. He loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, therefore he didn't come. The idea is that this is the course that love chose. He loved them, and consistent with that love, he didn't go. His will is at work here in ordaining this situation. The final thing to observe about Jesus' perspective is that he intends in this situation to give to Martha a fuller revelation, a fuller disclosure of himself, leading to the increase of Martha's faith. One of the things that Jesus is doing in this situation is arranging things such that Martha would cry out to the Lord, and through that, the Lord himself would give a fuller revelation, a fuller disclosure of his heart for her and who he is as the resurrection and the life. Well, that's all prelude leading up to the climactic words in verse 25 and 26. Now consider with me, secondly, the provision of resurrection. The prelude of resurrection, the provision of resurrection. I said a moment ago that Jesus intends to give to Martha a fuller revelation, a fuller disclosure of himself. Well, what is that disclosure? What does Jesus want her to know and appreciate that she apparently did not appreciate before these events took place? Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus says these words in response to Martha's affirmation of her belief, her sure belief, in the resurrection on the last day. She says that about her brother. I know that he will rise again, the resurrection at the last day. Jesus immediately goes after an apparent misunderstanding in Martha's theology. He says, Martha, you're missing the whole point. Of course, your brother will rise again, but he will rise because I am the resurrection and the life. If you think this is just about resurrection on the last day, you're mistaken. Martha, you need me if you're going to have resurrection, if you're going to have life. I am the resurrection and the life. And this is why I say that verse 25 is the big issue. This is what Jesus wants to reveal about who he is. This is a profound statement of self-identity. Jesus is disclosing something about himself hitherto misunderstood by Martha or not understood by Martha. Martha, you're missing the point. You're missing the big issue. This is not just looking ahead to some future event. Resurrection and life is here before you. And I want you to comprehend something about me, Martha. I want you to comprehend something about who I am as the resurrection and the life. Now, let's look more deeply at this statement from Jesus. What exactly is he trying to say about himself? It sounds, of course, very grand very cosmic. It could even sound a little bit abstract. But what is it precisely that Jesus is trying to communicate to Martha about who he is and through Martha to us as well? I think Jesus seems to be conveying two separate but complementary ideas. Two separate but complementary ideas. Uh, resurrection and life are not the same thing. He's saying, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Two distinct but complementary things. And I think, emphasis on think, okay? 
Uh, I was more convinced of this conclusion on Friday than I was this morning. So take this as a tentative conclusion, okay? I think that Jesus, in the second half of verse 25 and in verse 26, it helps if you have eyes on the text at this point, what Jesus is doing is explaining these two distinct but complementary ideas. So he says, I am the resurrection, and the latter half of verse 25 is an explanation of what that means. Then he says, I am the life. And verse 26 is in essence an explanation of what that means, a tentative conclusion. So let's look at these two distinct but complementary ideas. Jesus says, first of all, I am the resurrection. And I'm suggesting that this idea is linked to the corresponding statement in verse 25. I'm the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The actual physical bodily resurrection of believers is a foundational Christian truth. Okay, we, we believe that, right? Uh, but also in this statement, we, there's an assumption here, right, that our attachment to Christ apparently does not bring with it a, a, a pass to escape death. So you and I will die assuming Christ doesn't return before then. But the promise in this text is that we will be raised. Now, this appears to be a promise unique to believers, right? If you believe in me, though you die, yet you shall live. And someone might say, okay, well, is he saying that only Christians are going to rise again? Only those who have an actual personal faith in Jesus Christ will rise again. What about those who don't believe in Jesus Christ? Well, that's not exactly what Jesus is saying here. We know from other places in Scripture that everyone will be raised the righteous and the wicked. But we know that the righteous and the wicked, believers and unbelievers, will be raised to completely different ends. They will be raised, brought to life, into completely different experiences. And it's helpful to think back uh, to a passage we considered briefly last week, and that's in John 5, where Jesus speaks again about resurrection. I want to read to you verses 28 and 29. Uh, Jesus says there, "'Do not marvel at this.'" For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We're all going to come out. Those who have done good, that is, those who have responded to Christ in repentance and faith and who have followed Him as disciples, they will be raised to life to real life, to eternal life, to a new experience of intimacy with God in paradise forever with Him. That's the resurrection unto life. But of course, the wicked will be raised too. They'll be conscious. They'll, they'll be awakened. They'll be animated. They'll have a heartbeat. But for those who refuse to accept Christ, they'll be raised to a completely different end, a completely different experience. Their resurrection will be unto judgment. It will be unto eternal punishment. It will be unto eternal death. You see, there's these two completely different experiences of resurrection, and only one can properly be called life. Now, what makes the difference between these two different outcomes at the resurrection on the last day? Well, in our text in John 11, Jesus couldn't be clearer. The difference hinges on whether or not you believe in me, Jesus says. If you believe in me, if you follow me, if you have me, you will be raised to life. It doesn't matter if you have a connection to Abraham. It doesn't matter if you have a connection to Moses. A long-standing religious pedigree won't help you. Membership at the First Baptist Church won't help you. What entitles you to the resurrection leading to life is a saving attachment to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Martha, you need me. I make the difference. I am the resurrection. And if you believe in me, even though you die, you will rise again. And that resurrection will not be unto judgment. It will not be unto eternal death. It will not be unto perishing. It will be unto life, real life, eternal life, a new experience of life with God in paradise forever. He says, I am the resurrection. But secondly, the second distinct but complementary idea, Jesus says, I am the life 
And just like he explains what it means that he is the resurrection, that though one dies, he will, of course, live again. So Jesus now explains what it means that he is the life, and he explains it in verse 26. He says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. When Jesus refers to everyone who lives, I don't think he's referring to everyone who has a heartbeat. Everyone who who lives has a heartbeat and at some point then believes, well, they will never die. No, he's referring to everyone who has been born again. Everyone who has been given new life by God's Spirit, been given eternal life, those who have been given life, who of course then have faith, they will never die. They'll never die. Now that's odd, because just a moment ago, uh, Jesus said that though you die, you will live. But now he says you will never die if you have him as the life. Well, how can he say that? You won't, you will die, you won't die. Well, it's not all that complicated. Jesus is playing on the word die. He's in essence saying, sure, you might die, but you won't really die. You've heard that song, uh, it is not death to die. Well, sure, you might flatline. Your heart might stop beating one day, but you won't really die. That second use of the word die is using that word in the more sort of expansive sense of the word. It's the idea of really dying, truly dying, finally dying. Uh, Just like Jesus' view of life is so much greater than simply having a heartbeat, so his view of death is far more profound than simply ceasing to have a heartbeat. There's such a thing as eternal death as eternal destruction, final perishing. And Jesus says, you won't experience that kind of death. That kind of death all my people will be spared from. In that sense, you will never die. As the Lord said back in John 10, verse 28, they're my sheep and they will never perish. I give to them eternal life. John 8, verse 24, you might remember there that Jesus said, I told you, he's speaking to his opponents, That you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That doesn't mean that they'll just stop breathing as a sinner. This is the idea of destruction, of eternal death, of perishing in sin. And then verse 20, excuse me, 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, that is, if anyone believes in me, he will never see death. Well, of course, if Christ does not return, we're all going to see death in some sense. But there's a certain kind of death, a real death, a true death, a final death that God's people will never see. We will not ultimately die. We will not truly die. We will not perish. We will not be destroyed and lost and forsaken. We will live if we have Jesus who is the life. And again, I ask you, what is it that makes the difference between those who experience eternal punishment, final perishing, and those who live forever. Well, Jesus says, it's a saving attachment to me. It's to have saving faith in me that makes the difference. It's believing me, Martha. What separates those who die in their sin from those who will never die is whether or not you believe that I am the Christ, the Son of God, that I myself am the resurrection and the life. And if you embrace me, if you have me, if you receive me by faith. So now let's bring it all together. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's saying, Martha, if you want resurrection and if you want life, you need me. And what's more than that, you can't have those things apart from me. Jesus says, Martha, I'm offering you myself. You have to have resurrection and life in me, through me, only in attachment to me. And this is what he's offering to Martha. This is the provision of resurrection. Christ himself is the provision. Jesus wants Martha to focus on him, not looking ahead to some event in the distant future, but to look at resurrection and life that is before her, which means that Jesus cannot give to you cannot give to Martha anything better than himself. 
There is nothing better Christ can give Martha, there's nothing better Christ can give us than Himself, because all of His blessings, all of His riches, all of His gifts, it's all tied up in who He is, and we only have those things, experience those things through our union with Him. It's through a saving relational attachment to Jesus that entitles us to the resurrection at the last day, that entitles us to eternal life, that entitles us to the joys that are at His right hand forevermore, that entitles us to paradise forever with God. All those gifts, all those things we have in Jesus Himself, and we have them through our saving attachment to Him. That's what Martha and Mary needed to learn. Now, there's an important implication of this truth. I just want to state it at this point. We should ask, how was Martha to know that she was loved by Jesus? How are we to know that we're loved by Jesus? Well, it's not by whether He keeps your brother alive. It's not by whether He keeps your mother alive or your spouse alive. It's not by whether or not He spares you from financial ruin. It's not by whether or not He shields you from pain and suffering. It's not by whether or not He gives you a spouse or children or the job you want. His love for His people is measured by how much of Himself He gives them. And His love for you is measured by how much of Himself He gives you. And this is what the sisters needed to learn. If I get more of Jesus a fuller knowledge of who He is, a richer and deeper experience of who He is, a fuller disclosure of His heart for me. If I come to know Him better through this painful and sorrowful situation, then it's all worth it. I want Jesus however I can get Him, and if it takes this, bring it on. But I want to know my Lord. Of course, Jesus is using this whole situation because He loves Martha and Mary, and He wants to reveal something to them about who He is. Jesus will pray later in John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you want to know what eternal life is? Do you want to experience eternal life? It's intimate knowledge of the living God in Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus was after with these women. He wanted to draw them in, invite them in to a more intimate relationship with Himself, to a greater knowledge of who He was and what His purposes for them were. John 14, verse 21, Jesus says, He who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I love this statement. He says, And I will love Him and manifest myself to Him. What's the evidence that Jesus loves you? What's the proof that Jesus loves you? It's if He's willing to manifest Himself to you. I will love him, and I'll reveal myself, I'll manifest myself. That's precisely what Jesus is doing in this text. He was moved by love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And now here in this crucial moment where Martha's faith is pressed and tested and squeezed, Jesus gives to her a fuller manifestation of himself because he loves her, and he wants her to know him more deeply. I wonder if you have any idea what I'm talking about. Have you had the experience that I was brought by God into the most painful and difficult of circumstances, and that it was precisely in the crucible of pain and all my suffering and all my crying and all my, oh God, help me, oh God, where are you, oh God, why didn't you come to my aid, that it was in the midst of all of that that God made His fullest and most intimate disclosure of His heart to you. Have you ever experienced that? That's what Martha and Mary experienced in this circumstance with Jesus. And by this statement, Jesus is inviting Martha into a newer experience of intimacy with God and Christ. And we know He's inviting her because He says at the end of all of this, Martha, do you believe this? He's wooing her. He's drawing her, inviting her. Do you know me like this? Do you now see me like this, that I am the resurrection and the life? You say, Martha, come up here. I have something better for you. I have something far more wonderful for you that you've not yet seen that I want you to see now. Come up here. 
Martha, do you believe this? And what's Martha's response? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It's one of the most profound statements of faith, not just in John's gospel, but in all of the Bible. Some people ask, what does it mean to have saving faith in Jesus Christ? This is what it looks like. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. These words that are in Martha's heart, that are expressed on her lips, they actually are verbatim the purpose statement of John's gospel. Why was the gospel written? It was so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Life in Jesus, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And it is in that revelation, that disclosure, that Martha says, I believe, Lord, I believe. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And John wants us to enter into Martha's experience. He's after our faith, just like Martha's. This expression on her lips, he wants to be on our lips as well. As we look at who Jesus is in this gospel, as we see him in this instance as the resurrection and the life, he's inviting us, do you believe this? Do you embrace this about Jesus? Do you see him like this? Do you see the glory as of the only Son sent from the Father? Do you believe this? He's drawing out our faith and wooing us into a relationship with him. This is the provision of resurrection. It's Jesus Christ himself. Well, now thirdly and finally, we've seen the prelude to resurrection, the provision of resurrection. Thirdly and finally, consider with me the proof of resurrection. Now we move to the big dramatic event, right? The raising of Lazarus. You might be able to see now why I said at the start of the message that this is really just a formality at this point. The resurrection and the life is here. Jesus is who he said he is. It's over. His people are going to live. And all Jesus does now is simply prove that his statement is true. The Son of God is here. And just like he said back in John 5, all he has to do is lift up his voice and the dead will rise out of the tombs. Just as Lazarus' resurrection was a formality, your resurrection from the dead is a formality, a blessed formality, a wonderful formality, a formality we can't wait for. But if you have Jesus now, you have the crucial issue. You have the resurrection and the life now. And we will enjoy the fullest expression of that when we are raised at the last day. Well, this is what happens for Lazarus, and all I want to do here is simply read the passage to you. So look on with me at verses 38 through 44, the proof that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the decisive proof that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that he commands death and Hades. What will it be like for us? What will it be like for you? to be asleep in Jesus, and then to awaken to the voice of the Son of God, saying, come out. And all who are in Christ will come out to the resurrection of life. It'll be a far more glorious resurrection than this one was for Lazarus. Lazarus was raised to all his old problems, to all of his old sins, none of that went away. 
But that final resurrection, for all those who have Jesus now, who have the resurrection and the life now, what will that be like to rise in response to the voice of God's own Son and to come out to life? I'd like to close with just a few lines of application. As I said, this statement from Jesus that He's the resurrection and the life, this whole chapter, this whole episode uh, can seem a little bit abstract um, and maybe removed from our circumstances. So I'd like to consider three lines of application. First of all, we ought to measure Jesus' love for us, not by how many temporal blessings He brings us, but, how much, but by how much of Himself He gives us. We ought to measure Jesus' love for us not by how many temporal blessings He brings us, but by how much of Himself He gives us. Isn't it amazing in our Christian life, in our Christian walk, we so often think about the love of God toward us, uh, like maybe that proverbial um, Juliet with her little flower, he loves me, he loves me not. Oh, look, he gave me a job, he loves me. Oh, look, he took it away, he loves me not. Oh, look, the sun is shining down on me, he loves me. Oh, look, some great trials in my life, he loves me not. Oh, look, my child just got a full scholarship to Wake Forest, he loves me. Oh, look, my child was born with cerebral palsy, he loves me not. What are we doing? What are we doing? What sort of superstition has bewitched us if we think like that? God is not some capricious God who, who doles out affection through temporary blessings or withholding temporary blessings. That's not how His love is expressed to us. The love of God is measured by how much of Himself He gives you. Eternal life, the abundant life, the good life, is to know God and Jesus Christ, His Son. That's the prize, to actually come into greater knowledge and experience of the beauty and the glory and the majesty of God and His love and in His grace and in His mercy and of His compassion for His people. It's to know God in Christ. That is the experience of eternal life. And listen, there are people who have many material blessings, many material blessings, who know nothing of the love of God. And there are people whose lives are marked by affliction, and yet they know God more intimately than any of us in this room. My friend, don't measure Jesus' love for you by what temporal blessings He brings your way. And don't measure His love for you by whether or not He keeps your brother alive. Measure His love by His own person and by His own revelation of Himself to you. Listen, He might rob you of everything you hold dear, and yet even that might be an expression of His love for you if it actually causes you to know Him better. I'm sure Martha and Mary, if they could go back, would not change a thing. Because it was then, in verse 25, not in verse 44, it was in verse 25 that I learned things about my God that I didn't know. I saw a beauty and a wonder and a glory in Jesus that I did not understand. It's like being born again a second time, and some of you have had those experiences. It was when God ruthlessly stripped away everything and sort of grabbed you by the face and forced you to gaze at Him that you finally came to know her in a deeper and richer and fuller way, and you wouldn't trade that for anything. The song of response we'll sing in a moment, Be Still My Soul. There's a line in there that reads, Be still my soul when dearest friends depart. Martha could have sung that. Be still my soul when dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shall you better know His love his heart, who comes to soothe your sorrows and your fears. Be still, my soul, thy Jesus can repay. From his own fullness, all he takes away. And sometimes it takes, it requires that stripping away of everything we hold dear, stripping away of idols in our lives, stripping away of certain relationships that are holding us back from knowing Christ as He wants to be known. But then out of His fullness, He repays all that He has taken away.
Well, Jesus took Lazarus away. But he did it so that he could give Martha himself, which is far better. Second line of application. Second line of application. We should never disconnect Jesus' gifts from his person. We should never disconnect Jesus' gifts from his person. Jesus never gives us gifts divorced from himself. You don't enjoy his peace, his life, his joy, his mercy, his compassion, his riches apart from him. All of Christ's blessings are bound up in his person. I get those things insofar as I get him. Uh, We said this before, we observed this before. Jesus isn't like handing out eternal life certificates for us to go off and enjoy in a corner. He, He doesn't hand out to us a voucher for everlasting joy that we can have all by ourselves somewhere else. That's not what he does. No, what Jesus does is he marries us. He he draws us into union with him, draws us into an actual vital relationship with him, like a vine to branches, and all of the riches of his grace and all of the blessings of his person we have by union with him. And would we want to enjoy them any other way? To rise on the last day disconnected from Jesus' person. No, we will rise on the last day because we are connected to Jesus. All of his blessings bound up in who he is. And this is the best thing about the gospel. Not that we get all his blessings, but that we get him. And that through him, all the blessings will come. If I could use an illustration, Jesus is not like some rich estate owner who dies and then leaves everything he has in his will to you. Jesus is like the richest state owner who marries you and elevates you out of all of your poverty and all of your shame, and he he gives you the title of being his bride. And it's like him telling you, I love you, and you are mine, and I am yours, and because you have me, everything I have is yours. Because you have me, because I am the bread of life, because I am the light of the world, because I'm the good shepherd, because I'm the resurrection and the life, all that I have is yours, because we're one. Third and final, and maybe the most obvious point of application, the perspectives of this passage should be brought to bear every time someone near us dies. The perspective of this passage should be brought to bear every time someone near us dies. It's possible that no passage has been the subject of more funeral sermons than John 11. There's good reason for that. I'm a young pastor of a young church, so I've not done many funerals, but I've done a couple. And the best advice I ever received about how to carry on a funeral and what to say in those settings is to preach to the living about the living. Preach to the living about the living. It's not primarily a time to recount all the good events of this person's life or to speculate about their eternal destiny. No, no. You have living souls before you. Preach to the living about the living, about the resurrection and the life. We can bring that perspective to bear every time someone near us dies, whether they're in Christ or outside of Christ. Listen, I I want to tell you about the one who is the resurrection and the life. And I want to tell you that if you believe in him, though you die, you will live. I want to ask you, do, do you believe this? This is who our Savior is. This is who our Lord is. And we, of course, mourn and weep, but we weep with hope that through our living, saving attachment to Jesus, we will rise again, and we'll rise with Him, and we won't just rise to some new sort of ethereal world. We'll rise to the resurrection of life and paradise forever, eternal life, coming to greater and greater echelons of knowledge of God Himself. We worship the one who is the resurrection and the life, and you can be attached to him. You can embrace him today, and really that is the only issue that matters. Jesus doesn't really talk to Martha much about Lazarus. He wants her to know something about him. 
And we can bring that perspective whenever someone near us dies. To the believer, it's the most encouraging thing in the world. To the unbeliever, it could become the means of salvation. It could become the means of deliverance. That through this sorrowful occasion, could it be that God Himself, Christ Himself, is grabbing your attention and saying to you, death is real. Death is coming for us all. But I am the resurrection and the life. I have defeated death. And I give eternal life to all those who believe in me in saving faith. There's no reason you have to perish. There's no reason you have to die in your sins. You can rise again to life in Christ. And I offer you that life now. Do you believe this? Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we just sort of stand back amazed at your ways with us, at your ways with Martha and Mary in this text. It sort of confounds us how you use the events of our lives, the circumstances of our lives, even very painful and bitter things to bring us into a greater degree of intimacy with you, knowledge with you, relationship with you. But we thank you that you are nonetheless committed to us. You are nonetheless resolved to draw us into fuller and deeper knowledge of you. You actually want us to know your heart more. You want us to have a fuller view of who you are in Christ. And so, Lord, we say, whatever means you will use to bring that about, we embrace them. Because we know that there is nothing more wonderful than the experience of eternal life, which is to know God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so draw each one of us, by whatever means, into a fuller relationship with him. Help us to better know and trust Him. And Lord, for all of us now, may our hearts go out to You in faith. May our hearts run out to the Lord Jesus, who Himself said He is the resurrection and the life. No one here needs perish. No one here has to die in their sins. You have made a provision that for all those who believe on Your Son, and profess Him as the Christ, the Son of God, can have life in His name. Cause our hearts to run out to You in such faith now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.